everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. We are going to conclude our discussion on the family today. So if you have your Bibles and you've been here the whole time, you know where we're going. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We will be concluding our discussion on the family today with one of the topics that the church despises talking about in all facets and in all forms, and that is the nature of sex. We have dealt with a lot of things. We've dealt with gender identity. We've dealt with sexuality. We've dealt with God's very definition of what it is to have a family, to be a man or a woman. That the reality of God's family is not that it is a requirement that you even be married or that you have children. Because in the beginning when God created Adam, he made Adam alone and considered that to be a family. So if you are single, you do not have kids If you are by yourself, you are every bit as much a part of the plan and agenda God has in this world in expanding the name and the glory and the nature of Christ across this planet. And you might be wondering today, well, if I'm single or if I'm too old, what in the world does sex have to do with me? Everything. And as you can tell already, I am so comfortable preaching about this subject. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, as we look at the beginning of how God defines, creates, makes family. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be food also to you, every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything he'd made, and indeed it was very good. We've had quite a few discussions about the family. And the reality is, is that this is the first place that Satan enjoys, wishes to focus all his assault when it comes to diminishing or detracting from the agenda that God has in your life and my life. And if you're wondering what that agenda is, what the purpose of your life is, what God wants for you in your life, you will not find it at the end of any other book or any other self-help concept or anything that any person teaching you has to say outside of the foundation that God's goal for your life is to reflect him and make more people look like him. That's why you don't have to have your own kids in order to be a father or a mother. God has ordained it in such a way that if you know a little bit more about him than someone else, then you are able to be a father or a mother to that person. Now that being said, stay in your lane. You don't get to switch from being a dad to a mom or a mom to a dad. That does not necessarily mean that some women do not have some masculine traits about them and some men do not have some feminine traits about them. The reality is, is most 
most of those traits that we've tried to address as masculine or feminine have nothing to do with male and female. If you'll remember back, the only thing that makes a male, and this is about a year ago when I preached this, so if you don't remember it, go through the Facebook archives and find it. It's on there somewhere. The only thing that makes a male is the innate potential to give the resources to create life. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It is the innate potential to give the resources that create life, both biologically and spiritually. You see that when God tells Adam, I want you to name the animals. That's why when people get married, the woman takes on the last name of the man because God has given the man the responsibility to name things in such a way that it becomes reflective of what the man is giving or what the father is giving to what he has named so that it will grow into that thing. That's why names are so important in the Bible. When you see someone named Daniel, it's God is my judge. If you remember back in the book of Daniel, Daniel goes into captivity and all of a sudden they try and change his name from Daniel to whatever name they were making it. But the idea was, Daniel, no longer God is your judge. We're going to make our gods your judge. You will be a bastion of that. We will change the innateness of what you have been given by your father the spiritual identity that was passed down to you by him and we will reformat it that is what makes a male nothing more nothing less that's why if a man is sterile and unable to have kids nothing is actually changed there's just something broken in his body that does not change the innate potential that God has placed in him both biologically and spiritually so that he can foster life now let's go to the woman the only thing that makes a woman, the only thing that makes you female, is the ability to take resources and grow them into something more than they could ever be on their own. You do not have to look very far beyond when a woman becomes pregnant to realize that she has been given resources. She starts out with a resource inside her given by the Father of God, the Father God. She is then given a resource by the human Father. And in that, all of a sudden, those resources come together that have been placed in her and they become something not possible outside of her. The same holds true in the spiritual realm. The woman is to take whatever resources she receives from God, whatever resources she receives from the man that God has placed in her life. Not any random man, by the way. I love when I hear people say, well, you have to submit if you're a woman. Correct to your husband. You ever heard church? Well, if you're a woman, you've got to submit to the man. Which man? That, well, just any man that walks in. You've got to listen to whatever. No, the only man you have to submit to is your husband. And by the way, if your definition of submission does not reflect how Christ submitted to Father God, then it is not the correct definition of submission. The only thing that that submission should look like is whatever Jesus looked like when he was submitting to the Father. Likewise, if your definition of headship, men, is not reflective of how Christ is head of the church. You remember what he did? He knelt down on his disciples and started washing those nasty, crusty, dirty, calloused, Galilean feet. Peter had the right idea. Do not touch my feet, Lord. That is the nastiest part. Don't touch. And Jesus says, you don't let me do this. You have no part of me. You want to know why Peter really didn't want Jesus touching his feet? Because Peter knew, if the master's doing it, I'm going to have to do it. And frankly, I don't like John because he's the disciple that Jesus loves. Jesus didn't love you more, John. You just got to wrote the gospel of John. I'm sure that's what Peter was thinking. Or I bet he had a really hard time with Matthew, the tax collector. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew probably collected Peter's taxes. And Peter's like, there is no way I am washing that double-crossing two faced snake stealing money laundering pet of the roman government's feet whenever i and all of a sudden 
If your definition of headship in the household does not look like the way Jesus exercised headship, then what you have is a tyrant. If your definition of submission does not reflect the way that Jesus submitted to God, in that he had conversations with God, in that he dialogued with God, in that he disagreed with God the Father. Oh, Jesus never disagreed with God. Yes, he did. Dad, if there's any way that we can do this, don't let me die on the cross. If there's anything I can do besides dying on the cross that will save all of humanity, let me do that. If your definition of submission does not look like that. Women, you're not supposed to be at home. Stay there and shut up. You better disagree with your husband sometimes as long as at the end of it, if he's being a godly man and goes to God and says, I believe this is what God has for our household, then women, unfortunately at that point, you need to say, all right, if this is what you believe God wants, I'll submit to it. But that does not mean take it lying down like a rug that he can walk over like a tyrant. We've messed this whole thing up. And what has happened is because we have men who end up being taught to be tyrants, because we have women who end up being taught to just be a rug that says nothing, women are to be seen, not heard, just like children, because we've done that, it has wormed its way into sex. And the problem is sex is not a pleasurable experience. Now listen with me and stay real close to me. I realize that is the benefit of sex. I realize that is the enjoyment part of sex. But by its base, at its very foundation, the purpose of sex is not pleasure. It is submission. That's why we've got a problem in the church, because most of the time we've been taught growing up is that really men, all they think about is sex. Men only want one thing. It's sex, sex, sex. In fact, anytime you watch a TV show, that's all they're thinking about. Sex, sex, sex. How can I get this woman to sleep with me? How can I say whatever I need so that she'll find me attractive enough so that I can sleep with her? And we've taught this world that that's all men want. And I don't mean that the world has taught that to the church. I mean the church has taught that to the world, that the only reason God placed the confines of sex inside marriage is because men are animalistic beasts who cannot control their innate desire for a woman they find attractive. And as a result, what ends up happening is you have women walking around in the church and in the world scared out of their mind from a young age thinking that if I ever let my guard down, this man's going to take advantage of me. If I ever do anything that is outside the bounds, he's going to misinterpret it and he's going to take... Now listen, that's not to say that there are some... I'm trying to think of the godly way to say piece of garbage. I, I, I get it. We act like trash sometimes. Some people act like trash. That doesn't make them trash. Acting like trash doesn't make it. But we've taught women, fear men. Because all they are is something that wants to devour you. You want to know where they got that idea? Wives submit to your husband, for the husband's the head of the household. And then the church says, what's happening at home? Oh, he's abusing you? Well, he's the head of the household. He's going to have that right to. Oh, he's verbally abusive to you and the children? Well, he's the head of the household, so I guess you just got to tough it out. God hates divorce. You're stuck in this. Now listen, I'm not advocating divorce. Go back about two or three sermons and listen to my sermon on divorce. I'm not advocating for divorce. But the church for the last few centuries has created tyrants out of men and terrors out of women because they've become so afraid. And what does fear eventually become? I despise you. And through grit teeth, I hate you. And what ends up happening is we've fostered under the surface this idea in marriage. Oh, isn't it so wonderful that two have come together and become one? Yes, wife, but don't ever let your guard down because that man will devour you. And no matter how godly he seems, all he's thinking about is sex. You need to be afraid and don't make sure you don't ever give it to him unless it's on your terms. What in the world have we done to ourselves? 
What's this got to do with single people? Let's keep something in mind. There's a world out there of single people who think that sex is meant to only be a transactional thing for the pleasure of oneself, and as a result, they think they can do whatever they want. You want to know who the best person to teach them about the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the spirituality, the enjoyment of what sex is? You want to know who the best people are? Single people who have restrained themselves unto the person of God. You need to understand how sex works in the kingdom of God so that when you're discussing with people, they have someone that they can lean on. Someone who loves God, loves them, and can explain to them there is a method, there is a way in which this works in the kingdom of God. But the reality is, is that we've become so afraid of the discussion. We've become so uncomfortable with the discussion. You want to know how I know that's true? Anybody in here have parents? I assume so. I don't think we've had another Mary situation. And even then, you've at least got a mom and then some type of earthly father. So everybody in here has had parents. One of two things happened when you were growing up. Your parents sat you down and said, let's have the talk. And instantly inside, you died. That's what happened. That is when you died as a teenager. You don't know why it happened. You didn't understand what was happening. You just know mom or dad came to you and said, let's have the talk. You don't know what the talk is. And all of a sudden, there's all these awkward analogies used that you really don't understand because it's not making sense to a teenage brain. And just somewhere inside of you, you feel like, I wish I were not real. I wish I were nothing more than a two-dimensional piece of art in a Pixar Disney movie where they never discuss these awkward situations. What? Either that happens... Or it becomes overly sexualized, and the only focus of it is the pleasure of it. The only focus of it becomes, how do I take from the other person what gives me pleasure? Is pleasure bad? No. Is pleasure a bad thing? No. You want to know how I know? Because God to Adam and Eve, when everything is perfect, remember what I have said throughout this entire series. If you want to know what the family is actually supposed to look like, if you want to know what the fullness of singlehood and marriage and then raising a family, whether they are your biological children or your spiritual children, if you want to know what that looks like, you must first start in the Garden of Eden where God makes the family in its perfection and then take the rest of the Bible where it discusses what what manliness is, what womanliness is, what marriage is, what singleness is, what rearing children is, and you must project that back into the perfection of the garden, excluding the sin. It does not mean that we live in a world without sin or that even we can live without sin because we live in a world with sin. I'm not saying you have to sin. I'm saying you're not going to escape being tempted. But in all of that, you have to look at everything the Bible discusses, project it back into the Garden of Eden, find the fullness of it in the person of Christ and the redemption of his cross, and from there, now you begin to understand what it was meant to look like. Not what we've made it look like today, but what it was meant to look like. It is not supposed to be something that is overly sexualized, but it is something that God says, go ahead and have as much at it as you want within the confines of what I've created. You want to know how I know? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, the church, when we read that scripture, if we're going to get an image in our heads, we see God say, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam and Eve looked at God Looked at each other, no one's wearing any clothes. Looked at God, looked at each other, high-fived each other, and then there were babies. Because we don't want to deal with the subject of it. It's too awkward. It's too deep. It's too personal. I don't know how to deal with this because we have made it so focused on the pleasure of it. We can never really get to the fullness of it. There is pleasure in sex. I'm not saying that there's not. But the point of it was never that. That's the byproduct. You want to know why there's so many divorces? 
Because the point of your marriage, if you are married, is not to be happy. If you're single, you're not looking to be married so that you can be happy. If God has made you a person who will be single for the rest of your life, you'll never be happy by that type of logic. You'll never have any enjoyment in the kingdom of God because you're single and therefore you're like, when we make marriage about happiness, all of a sudden we realize this person's not going to make me happy. I'm not going to be as enjoyed in this marriage as I thought I was. No, the purpose of marriage is to make you look more like God. Nothing more, nothing less, and happiness sometimes comes out of that. The enjoyment sometimes comes out of that. But I'll tell you what you'll find more often than not in a marriage when you are looking to be made more like God through the person he has given in you in your life. Peace, stability, assurity, foundation, stability in that I am who I am and God has made them who she is or he is, whoever you are, and all of that. And I will look more like God because of this person he's put here to frustrate me or to annoy me that I love so much. But when we start saying, well, this person doesn't make me happy. Well, I'm just trying to find someone that makes me happy. All of a sudden, but you want to know why sex is so disappointing in the church? Because we think it's all about the pleasure. And when the pleasure wanes, as it often does in a marriage, we think it's gone. I love how Paul puts it. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. He's talking about the marriage between a man and a woman. And he's using it in correlation to the cross and salvation. When you give your life to Christ, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You want to know what that means when he puts it into the confines of marriage? He says, husbands, you don't own your wife. But I'm the head of the household. Husbands, you don't own your wife. But I'm the one in charge. Husbands, you don't own your wife unless she owns you too. We've always made it. Well, if the husband's the head of the household, then this is all his stuff. Okay, what's the wife own? Him. You are not your own. You are the husband's body. The Bible says the husband's body belongs to the wife. Which means men, when she says take out the trash, you don't get to say no because guess who owns you? Her. Guess what, women? The inverse is true too. He owns your body and she owns his body. Now that makes it really awkward if you want to go ahead and be intimate because you can say, well, I own you, so you have to have sex with me. She can look back at you or he can look back at you and say, well, I own you, so you don't get to have sex with me. Now what do you do? You're stuck at an impasse. That's why sex is not about what do I get. It's how do I give myself in all I am to this person. It is a full surrender of everything you are to the other person. That is why it is so difficult to actually have sex. You want to know why there's so much difficulty with sexual bondage in this world today? You want to know why so many women are enticed by romantic comedies that show the perfect man who does everything exactly right? You want to know why women are so enthralled by books that have the most erotic writings in them and that draw the woman into this perfection of a relationship? You want to know why men are so drawn into the ideology of pornography and all the perversion that comes along with it. You want to know why we find ourselves there so much? Because we've made sex all about self and not about giving of self. And so as a result, you want to know what's easier? Getting what makes me feel good from another source than going to my wife to give myself to her. Because when you approach sex as a giving of self and place yourself as the secondary, all of a sudden, well, what about what I need? What about what I want? What about what makes me feel good? It's off the table. 
That's why so many men run to pornography. Women, it has nothing to do with them not wanting to have sex with you. It has everything to do with it's easier to get a high out of porn than to have to do all the work of being intimate. Men, that's why your wives will spend so much time sitting in front of a romantic comedy or a book, drinking a bottle of wine and eating chocolates because it's easier to get the romantic arousal that they desire from these austere and fantastical situations than go to the husband and be open and be barren and open and naked before him and let him see all the delicate points, not her body, but of all she is. And don't misunderstand. We have robbed women of their sexuality in the church. Because by turning men into beasts and women into the only thing that can satisfy that monster, many times women approach sex as, well, I guess this won't be very good for me. It's just for him. I'll do my due diligence. I'll give myself to him. I'll pray that it ends soon. We have robbed them of the pleasure of the man giving himself to her. We haven't even talked about the physical pleasure yet. All of this is the intimacy of when I take my clothes off, it is not to be satisfied, but it is to lay myself as a sacrifice before my spouse that my spouse would receive from me whatever makes them feel whole. You approach sex with that attitude, I promise you, you'll get the byproduct of pleasure, but I'll promise you something even deeper. You will get the goal of being intimate. You want to know what's missing from most marriages? Intimacy. You want to know why I know we don't like to talk about intimacy? Because most of us have never read the book of Song of Solomon's because we're too afraid to read it because it makes us cringe. Let me read some of it to you real fast. Let's just make everybody uncomfortable today. That's the goal of this sermon, by the way. I gave you a heads up, by the way. Five weeks ago, when I started the series, I let you know, we're going to get to the end. We're going to talk about sex. I'm not going to enjoy it. You're not going to enjoy it. Everybody's going to be uncomfortable because of everything that I've just talked about. And the reality is we need to figure out a way that we can come to the Word of God. You know, this thing that we call perfect, this thing that we say that all Scripture is God-breathed. We can't even approach this Bible that we love so much without looking at it and saying, Song of Solomon's, skipping that book. Not going there. Let's just go ahead and read a little bit. This is Solomon, by the way, talking to his wife. Let's see. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. No, that's not so bad. She has nice feet. You've seen people with nice feet. We've seen foot models. They always have those shoes on. Skechers or whatever nice heels that women see when they go to the store. And I don't know what stores you shop at because I don't buy shoes. My wife buys my shoes. But they've got foot models with those. That's not so. Solomon is really good. How beautiful are your feet in sandals? Well, he's got a really good eye. Let's go to the next part. The curves of your thighs. Skip. I know at least 80% of you immediately got uncomfortable as I read that sentence, because I'm uncomfortable reading it. <laughs> the curves of your thighs are like jewels. Solomon, what you doing looking at her thighs? At her hips? Well, it's my wife. Why can't I? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for reproof, correction, and exhortation. How much of scripture? How? Oh, we're in trouble. How much of scripture? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. The curves of your thighs. You sure about that usefulness, God? 
Let's keep going. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. You know what a blended beverage is? That's called a mixed drink. Now, you got to laugh because if you don't laugh, we're going to feel real awkward here in a minute. I get it. Most of this is nervous laughter. I get, but a blended beverage is a mixture. He's not talking about I mix grape juice and apple juice. I mean, this is a hard, and again, the Bible does not say you can go ahead and get drunk. Be not drunk with wine, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not advocating, but this is a man talking to his wife and using images to describe how intoxicated by her he is physically. Let's keep going. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. I'm going to keep going back to the most awkward part and read through. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. He is literally staring below the chest at everything waist down and just analyzing it and undressing it piece by piece. How dare you look at me like I'm a piece of meat. And you know what Solomon's saying? You're my wife. You know what God's saying? You're his wife. By the way, read the rest of the book of Solomon because guess what she does? She does the same thing to him. Well, women aren't interested in sex. They just want to get it over with. So she does the same thing to him. You want to know what I love about Song of Solomon? It places the absolute perfection of arousal inside a marriage between a man and a woman in its fullness and lays it out how there is no shame, no embarrassment, nothing between this husband and this wife. You get the picture in Song of Solomon that these two people who love each other are literally ready to devour each other sexually with how much they're intoxicated with each other. And we in the church have said, well, we can't talk about that. God literally dedicates an entire book to bedroom talk between these two. Let's keep going. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about like lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle. Get your eyes up on her eyes, Solomon. That's what most of us would say. Why are you looking at me? Because we're naked in a bedroom. What, do you, what am I supposed to look at? I'll just look at a wall or blindfold myself. That's how we treat sex. We've made it so. Well, if you're married and you're going to have sex, turn the lights off, blindfold everybody so you can't see each other because you can't look at her and you can't look at him. God forbid any of this would ever happen. And we've got Solomon here writing in a book. In the word of God, how much of scripture is God breathed? Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not inviting you at all to talk about in this church about your sexual encounters with your spouse. That's not the idea. What I'm trying to do is remove the aspect of shame that we have applied to sex in the church. Because the reality is, is we can't even have these types of conversations with our spouse. It's too tender. It's too uncomfortable. It's too delicate. How is it that we have taken something where it says Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame? And we've brought it into the bedroom between a man and a woman who love each other. And when they unclothe themselves in front of each other, they feel shame. How is it that we still feel shame in our marriages, the one place that God says be fruitful and multiply. You want to know how you get better at math? You practice. So you want to know how you get more multiplication? You keep working at the problem. But until we deal with shame, which drives the husband away from the wife and the wife away from the husband to other wells of self-satisfaction, until we deal with shame in sex, we're never really going to have intimacy. 
Your, two fawn, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelles. Your neck is like an ivory tire. Your, owl, your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon. By the gate of Bathrabbin, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks like Damascus. Now, I really don't understand all that. I don't care. Maybe she's got a big nose, and that was attractive back then. I'm not sure. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. He loves her hair so much, he feels like he's become a captive of it. How fair and pleasant you are, O love with delights. Now we get to the really awkward part. You thought the first part was awkward, didn't you? By the way, she does all this too. Please don't think this is all Solomon talking to her. Her stuff back to him is just as arousing for her as his is for him. The stature of yours is like a palm tree. Nothing wrong with that. Your breasts like its clusters. All right, nothing wrong with that. I said I will go up to the palm tree and I will take hold of its branches. That's pretty clear. You look like a palm tree. Powerful. Your breast like its clusters, you are full. I said I will go up to the palm tree and take hold of its branches. Let now your breast be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the greatest of wines. This is a devouring chapter. I mean, he is literally getting ready to sexually consume his wife. And keep something in mind. She's getting ready to do the same to him. Go read some other chapters where it talks about that he is an intoxicating fragrance to her. That he takes his hand and places it on the back of her neck and his right hand on her waist and draws her into it. It is things that would make us blush were we to look at it anywhere else outside the Bible. And for the most part, it's making us uncomfortable now. You want to know what the problem is with us as a church? We have hidden away gold as though no no one should touch it. The world in desperation to have access to this gold that God has legitimately given to a husband and a wife, not knowing where to get it without shame, has decided rather than figuring out how to remove the shame from a beautiful thing, we'll make it shameless. There will be no shame in it. We'll go ahead and make it empowering for women to derobe themselves in front of every man. We'll go ahead and make it a good thing that men are enraptured by their base desires, by all of these things out there. For the women, we'll make sure that they have everything they need in a fantasy relationship so that they feel drawn into a relationship and maybe then they can find satisfaction in themselves of sex and we will place all of these wells and make it shameless to have all of this. That's why we can have movies on and on that depict sex over and over and over and over till it has become commonplace. And because we've seen the shamelessness of the world, we feel ashamed of what we have. Let me make this clear. The lack of intimacy between a man and a woman has nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do with shame. Women, your husband runs to things like pornography. It's not because you don't satisfy him. It's not because he does not find you attractive. It is because the shame associated and the cost associated with submitting himself to you in his fullness is so great that he must run to somewhere else to hide. Men, it is not that your wife does not want to talk to you or listen to you or build you up 
B sex. It is not that she wants to run from you. It is not that she does not enjoy sex. It is that the shame that she could have ever married such an animal has embarrassed her to the point in the depths of herself that she must run to other things that satisfy the need and the desire for intimacy as she prays for sex in the bedroom to be over. Be fruitful and multiply. And what we've done to sex is we've made it a transaction. Run into the bedroom. Let's transact this thing and be done with it. Rather than, here's all of me. What do you need from me to make you whole? understand what happens when you approach sex like that? There's no more conversation anymore. Well, they've got a bigger sexual appetite than I have, or I've got a lower sexual appetite than, than they have. That's not the conversation anymore. The conversation becomes, how can I give myself mind, body, and soul to my spouse? Let me be clear about something, women. Most men would rather live alone for the rest of their life than be able to have sex but feel embarrassed by it with their own wife. The appetites that most men have are actually very, very low. But because they feel shame over any little bit of it, it causes a rift and for them to run to other places and to consume things that seemingly are what they're looking for but never satisfy. Preacher, what do I do if I'm single? There is a wholeness about you that God has blessed you with. Jesus even says, I have a special reward for men who are eunuchs. Now the same applies to women, obviously. Paul makes sure to expand on that idea of the blessings that singlehood is given, that marriages are never afforded. Do you understand why as a single person it is so important for you to have an understanding of how sex works? Because the very base of it is giving of yourself. What in the world did Christ do for us on the cross? At its very basis, Everything that God does is all about how can I give all of I am to my children? And our response back to God is always, God, how can I give all of my am, all that I am, to you? Why would the bedroom be any different? Why is it that we've taken the bedroom? One of the first things that God commands his children to do, be fruitful and multiply. Let's put it in simpler terms. Go to the bedroom and give yourselves to each other. Not go to the bedroom and take from each other. Give yourselves to each other. We have warped this thing so much. We have taken one of the most glorious, spiritual, holy things that God has created that has a natural endorphin and adrenaline release of pleasure into the body. And we have turned it, even in marriage, to I'm going to take from you. 
instead of keeping it the same thing that the cross was all about, I'm going to give everything I am so you can be whole. How in the world do you make something like that so overly shameless and erotic? You can't. Don't you take the selfishness off the table. Listen, don't get me wrong. There is a lot of benefit to the one who gives themselves to the other. That's not, I'm not saying that's not there. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But my point is you can no longer bastardize this thing. You can no longer molest it so much that it becomes so warped that even the perfection of it becomes embarrassing and shameful when all of a sudden you bring it back to the place that God, when he first created, and said, give yourselves to each other. Adam, give all you are to your wife. She owns you. Eve, give all you are to your husband. She owns, he owns you. And then what does it say? They were both naked and felt no shame. You want to know why? Because Adam was able to say, here's everything about me. Nothing hidden. All of it's yours. Because Eve was able to be safe with her husband and say, here's everything about me. None of it's hidden. Preacher, what happens when we get older and we can't even have sex anymore? You think sex stops just because the body begins to stop functioning? Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Listen, sex goes so much further than just the action that we've reduced it to. It goes so much further. Some of the most holy of couples that I have met are husbands and wives who can't even physically have sex anymore but they let each other see them in their nakedness because they are making a statement, I still, in everything I am, whether I'm broken or whether I'm whole, belong to you. Intimacy requires a very, very simple thing that is absolutely terrifying. It requires a total derobing of everything you are all those things you feel insecure about yourself physically, all those things you feel insecure about yourself mentally, all those broken pieces and parts of you of the trauma of your past life that you wish you could hide away, make sure nobody ever knows. Even if you aren't the one that did it, maybe it was something that was done to you. All those things that cause you to recede from your spouse or to recede from the men and women God has placed in your life that he wants to bring to you to make you whole in the fullness of how he's created you. Wholeness requires openness, and openness is terrifying. There's a reason God made the byproduct of sex very, very pleasant, because the reality is the cost of it is too high for any of us to have interest in it. The cost of sex is way too high for any of us to want to willingly do it without the pleasure that comes from it. But because we've made the pleasure the goal, and not the part that we stumble into. We've made it something so shameful that we run from each other. And yet God has taken an entire book written by what we would call the wisest man who ever lived. Not just the husband's look on it, but the wife's look on it. An entire book that he lays bare the glory of of what it is to be sexually intimate with your spouse. 
all scripture is God breathed. You want me to go even further? What about when Jesus looks at the people who come and question him? And they're asking him, did you come to get rid of everything? And he says, no. In fact, I came to fulfill it. If you read further in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that all of the Old Testament, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The book of Song of Solomon is etched in the realms of eternity because it was breathed from the mouth of God to give life to how God views the bedroom, a place of glory, a place of holiness, a place of intoxication, and ultimately a place of submission. have robbed ourselves of some of the greatest gifts that God has given us. I'm going to close with this. For a while, I was a porn addict. And I don't mean like 10 years ago. I don't mean like 20 years ago. I mean like two or three years ago. Okay, so this is, you know, this is recent stuff. I'm not sharing this to be crass. I'm sharing this because I was at the end of my rope thinking, God, I have no way out. I don't know how to deal with this. I feel lost. I've spent thousands of dollars on programs. I've spent thousands of dollars on software, on everything I can. I have gotten rid of technology in desperation to wall myself out from this, and I cannot seem to find a way to be rid of it. I feel hopeless before it. I know I love you. I know I'm going to heaven, and yet nothing makes me feel more separate from you than this thing that seems to control me. I had someone recommend something to me called Pure Desire. And it's a pastor and a doctor of psychology who through his own walk with God and through his own battle in sexual bondage, God gave him the layout of how we even find ourselves in that type of bondage. The worst thing I ever found out in that entire program as I've gone through it. And let me tell you something. I still go through it. I go through it over. I went through it the first time. And man, the freedom I found. I do not go to it because I'm still looking for freedom. I keep on going to it because it lays a foundation so that I don't go back into it. I am not so foolish as to think, well, now that I'm out of it, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I don't do it out of fear. I do it out of fortification. Worst thing I found out about in that book is that me being stuck in this bondage had nothing to do with sexual desire. It had everything to do with a quick way to medicate myself so that I didn't have to deal with whatever past trauma or current stress I was dealing with. It was kind of embarrassing. We get to the end of this program and we're talking about it and things are becoming more and more clear. And all of a sudden, they're going through this thing called the matrix of addiction. They're starting to explain, all right, before you even make the action, what's happening before then? And what blew my mind is that if I found myself in front of a computer or in front of a phone looking at pornography, at this point now in the program, I could actually trace backwards six weeks in my life and tell you why I found myself in front of that thing six weeks later. It had nothing to do with the sex. It had nothing to do with an attraction to my wife. It had to do with six weeks earlier, I had gotten in a fight with someone, 
that I didn't know how to resolve. And everything ended well and amicably, but something inside of me still wasn't happy about it. And I felt like I was worthless or that I was confused or that I had done something wrong. And so that thing, because I never dealt with it, began to fester in me and began to build into pressure and frustration and confusion. And the only way I could find to medicate myself to at least for just about five seconds find release from whatever confusion or whatever stress or whatever anger or whatever irritation that had built up in me over six weeks required a quick drug to give me an intense high so that I didn't have to deal with it. Now, as I deal with it more and more and I go through who I am and who God has made me and the traumas that have happened in my life that have caused me to have an opening so that Satan can just waltz in and manipulate everything to draw me into things that are not of God, it is hilarious to me. You want to know what my number one trigger is? Boredom. You want to know why? I don't know if you've seen me, but I'm very, very active. I, I have something that some people would call ADHD. I don't believe in that. I think it's just something made up by the deep state government to keep us. No, I'm not. My mind goes 8 million places. Can't stop it. Just keeps running everywhere. There comes a point where nothing entertains me anymore. And as a kid, I would go to my mom. This is not on her. This is not a slight against her. It is a five-year-old child having something said to him that may or may not have been good that unfortunately he internalized and over the course of time Satan just waltzed in and began to manipulate it and foster it into something that it was never meant to be. I would get bored, I'd go to my mom and say, Mom, I'm bored. She'd say, find something to do. I was like, I've done everything, Mom. I don't have any games to play. I don't have any books to read. I don't have any music to practice. I'm bored, Mom. Can you do something and entertain with me? And her statement to me was, figure out something to do. Bored people are boring people. Now, have you ever met a boring person? Don't you just want to run through a brick wall, anything to make it more exciting because you cannot stand the conversation with them? It is like watching grass grow, the conversation with them sometimes. They just go on and on and on and like this sermon. And <laughs> I wish it was, trust me, I wish it was over. I wish it I, I was done with this series before I started preaching it. I was like, I've met boring people. I do not want to be a boring person. I will do anything I can to not be boring. You want to know what started happening at that point in my life? I started getting addicted to adrenaline. Because I could do something to cause everything inside me to spike so aggressively that I didn't have to feel bored anymore. As a kid, that's kind of easy because you can do crazy, stupid things. You don't know things yet. You can jump off roofs, and you're fine. You can go out and just randomly walk into a random neighborhood and get lost, and it's fine because you're a kid, and nothing can hurt you. Why would anything ever hurt you? You can do it, and so I would just find ways to excite me in every facet I could. I would get more extreme in the things I did. For crying out loud, I've told you a story where I convinced two of my friends to go shark fishing with me in the middle of the ocean, and here's how we went shark fishing. Let's go to the store and buy some raw meat, the ones that have the blood packets to keep it fresh. Let's go tie some twine around it and throw it out into the ocean. Not from a dock. Let's wade out up to our waists. And let's take a flashlight so we can at least see the shark when it shows up. And we threw out this 10-foot line of twine as I'm sitting here with surgeon gloves on, because that makes sense, squeezing blood into the thing, looking for a shark with a flashlight as my friend holds onto a string 10 feet long with cow meat on the other end of it. I was ready to fight something. I 
was like, let's get this sharp. When it shows up, I'll punch it in the nose so we survive. Like, this is what's going through my mind at 19 years old right now. We can do it. There's three of us. There's one shark. We can fight this thing. Let's see what shows up. Just start doing stupid anything to get this adrenaline rush in me. Because at five years old, bored people are boring people. I don't want to be boring. So find something to excite me. Find something to give me adrenaline. Find something to give me a boost. There's nothing wrong with reading. There's nothing wrong with sports. There's nothing wrong with doing things that are exciting. There does come a problem when you are desperately trying to escape the quietness of life. Because where does God speak usually? My mom didn't mean to do this, and she tried to teach me how to sit and listen for the voice of God. And I think she did a really, really good job. But because of one statement, don't be bored. Most of my life has been spent looking for a spike of endorphins. What happens when books become boring because you've read all of them? What happens when learning becomes boring because you've learned everything you want to learn or the things you want to learn are so far beyond you that you can't begin to comprehend them? What happens when you're injured and you can't go running anymore the way you used to and enjoy the excitement of whatever sport you're doing? What happens when music no longer gives you a thrill? What happens when even your friends whom you love and they love you begin to bore you and you cannot handle the lull of your life? You start looking for where else can I get something to spike this adrenaline. And what waltzes right in but a pornography addiction. The root of my addiction has nothing to do with sex despite having been sexually molested at a very young age. The root of my addiction has everything to do with my mom was trying to teach me how to be okay being alone. And because of one phrase that she said that a five-year-old boy couldn't comprehend but a vicious devil was more than willing to walk in and begin to cultivate. I found myself at the mercy of an electronic with a human that I'll never know, that'll never know me, but it could give me that spike I needed. You know how devastating it was for Christina when we finally started really getting into the brokenness of my addiction? Do you know how difficult it was for her to come to terms with the reality that had nothing to do with her attraction? I mean, have you seen her? She's beautiful. We all are well aware I have married out of my league. We don't need to bring it up anymore, okay? We get it. It's got nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with a vicious devil just walking in and taking something that was so benign saying, I can turn this into something devastating that'll cause Julian, as she calls him, to feel such shame that he'll run from his wife. Let me explain something to you. We're not going to get into the details of it, but for some reason, she does want me sexually, and yet I would shove her away because of the intense shame I felt from an addiction that was born out of a desperation not to see the lull of life. That's gotten infinitely better. 
I can't explain how, much, how nice it is to actually sometimes be home alone and not have to sit in my own house in fear that this addiction is going to come and drag me back to places I don't want to be. She would go to work. I would do everything I could not to let the kids sleep longer than they needed to. All right, you can only take a nap for this long because I can't be alone this long because I can't afford it and I don't want to be dragged back there again. I mean, my house was in chaos. I would deprive my children of sleep. I would do whatever I could to be with people so that I could not be alone. Christina going to work was the worst thing for me. Do you know how freeing it is to be at home alone and not have to sit there in fear anymore? Do you know how freeing it is to be in my own house at night when everything was quiet and everything was dull and no one's doing anything and I stay up late but Christina goes to bed early. Do you know how freeing it is to be able to sit in my own house and just rest so here's what we're going to do I believe in it this much that I have taken training on how to be one of the administrators of it so in August we're going to start what's called a pure desire group for men they have them for women, too. I'm not a woman. I can't do that one. We're going to pray that God ministers to a woman, that she would get trained so that she can minister to women who are either stuck in their own sexual bondage or have been betrayed by their spouse. And it goes both ways. But since I'm a guy, all I can minister into in this area specifically in the depths of it. I might be able to minister on the surface to women, but when you get down into the absolute depths of it, I cannot minister to a woman in this specific area one-on-one. -on -one. It must either be I and my wife, it must be a woman, or it must be me with the couple. That's how it's going to be. But in August, we're going to go ahead and start a pure desire group. Here's all I'm asking. If there's any question in your life as a man that you believe Satan has stepped in and abused the gift of sexuality that God has given you and you want to find freedom in it, just text me. Wives, if you know about something going on with your husband, don't know how to say it other than encourage him to reach out to me. Do not shame him. Is it something that deserves guilt? Yes, but guilt draws you to a place of repentance. Shame causes you to run and hide. If you know a man, going through it, they don't have to be part of this church, but I'm giving it first and foremost to this church. one of the first things that God dealt with in the garden. It's way more important to our lives than we give it credit for. And I promise you, there'll be no shame in this group. It's just going to be learning how to be free from something that consumes our world today. Of all the people God could have inspired to write the book on intimacy. God inspired the one man who asked him for wisdom. And 
not just the man who asked him for wisdom, but the wife of this man. There's really no clearer picture of one flesh because the wife of Solomon has just as much wisdom as him because she was so intimately united with him in the perfection of marriage. I don't know if you're dealing with what I've discussed today or if it's something completely different, but I just want to invite you to come forward and to be free of shame. It could have nothing to do with what I've spoken about today, but maybe there's something in your life that you feel intense embarrassment about or shame. Something that causes you to just run or run away and hide. I would invite you to come and be clothed in the kindness of a father who delights in you, who is not embarrassed by you, and who will surround you with his might and strengthen you so that you can stand full and whole and unashamed before him. If you have something to pray for, come now.